what's going on? Oh man, I'm Andrea Collins. Yup, this is Mindful Mostly coming to you today from my closet. Do you hear this? This is the sound of like 10 pairs of high-waisted mom jeans. I'm right in them. High-waisted mom jeans do nothing for your ass, but everything for your sound quality. I'm in here because I just don't spend enough time in my closet. And also the sound is so much better. If you are ever doing a podcast, uh, one, there's so many ways I can help you with that. And two, this is just the, where the best sound in the house is. Or if you can build like a fort out of couch cushions and crawl in like a giant human baby, best sound quality in there too. Only weird when you start inviting people over to be on your podcast and then they have to crawl into your pillow fort. <laughs> you know, why do we stop making pillow forts as we get older? This is what I'm always asking myself. Okay, let's get to business, shall we? Today on the show, the bloated belly whisperer herself... Tamara Duker Freuman is on the show. She's a registered dietitian. And today she's going to tell us one, the truth about gluten, how she feels about it, um, why the word inflammation is overused, her take on the lectin diet, because this is like the, the latest diet um, of limiting foods, where if you haven't heard of it, basically this doctor did some research and he found that foods have lectin in them, some of them. And lectin is kind of like the protection the plant gives itself so it doesn't get eaten. So lectin hurts your stomach because evolutionary-wise, they didn't want animals to eat them. So they were like, I'm going to coat myself in this lectin or something like that, and then that animal's going to get a stomach ache, and this lion isn't going to eat me anymore. <laughs> it's, I mean, you get it, right? That's not the exact scientific <laughs> reasoning for it. But... It's the new rage. And she's going to tell us if she thinks it's bullshit or not. Plus, I kind of stirred the pot a little. She's a registered dietitian. And I asked her, hey, what do you think of health coaches? Yeah, I know. It's pretty good. But first, um, I want to tell you about this headline that I read. Going on a date with someone attractive makes people eat less. Yeah, no kidding. Steve always talks about when we first started dating and how um, I would be like, mm, I couldn't possibly, I'm too full. Or, no, you go ahead, I've had just the right amount. And now I'm like, are you going to eat that? And I'm like licking my plate in front of him. I would probably be 10 pounds lighter if I ate dinner with a hot guy every night. Like a new hot guy every night. You know, because like after a couple of months, you're like, mm, I could get food on my face and I know you're still going to like me. Lastly, raise your hand if you're a yogi. I'm just going to say this. The word yogi has turned into the word foodie. I want to throw that word in the fire. But okay, so let's say you're a person who likes to do yoga. I've always said, I feel like, and I know this rubs some people the wrong way, yoga is not exercise. It's breathing and stretching. But I'm trying to change my mind on that because, one, I went and bought new Lululemon pants and they're extremely high rise so I can wear a crop top. There's like literally like 0.2 centimeters of stomach that shows. So I feel like, look at me, I'm in a crop top. 
with my giant high pants. <laughs> anyway, I was just at the yoga studio. I have some, I'm like stressed out about some stuff, which I can't talk about at the moment, but I will tell you down the line. It's part of the reason I'm in my closet. <laughs> and I found that the pros of the class were that I felt um, at peace once I left. Um, the studio was so nice. It's called Mosaic. It's in Toronto. It's in this old warehouse. It's like white and plants and industrial. It's really nice. They play good music. Um, but my problem is, why is it that nobody ever talks to the instructor? Like this, the instructor came in. She was so nice. She was like, how's everyone doing today? And no one said anything. And I'm like, good, thanks. Just to be a human. And everyone looked at me like, oh. <gasps> Plus, have you ever kicked over someone's water bottle by accident, maybe your own water bottle in a workout class? People get so startled. <laughs> Lastly, look, yoga is an exercise because there's a nap involved. Savasana is a nap. There is a nap worked into your workout, which is nice but guys, don't we need to get our heart rate up? Needless to say, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to like push through and do like a 90-dayer because I am committed. I am committed to falling in love with yoga. If, if, uh, if you want to tell me why it's the best or why you also think that it's not doesn't count as exercise, um, hit me up at Andrea at MindfulMostly.com or hit me up on Instagram at MindfulMostly. Speaking of which, did you guys get your hands on the High Vibe 5 yet? Basically, it's a five-minute meditation, magnetism, breathwork session. It's really awesome. You press play, set it and forget it. And I'm telling you, after that five minutes, you are going to feel so connected because you cut off the distractions and it's a reasonable amount of time. So if you want to get your hands on this, Take a screenshot of the review that you leave for Mindful Mostly on iTunes and email it to me at andrea at mindfulmostly.com and I will send you back the high vibe five. Okay, let's talk to the bloated belly whisperer. How do you classify, you know, what, what's true, what works? What's your, what's your theory on all of this? So I think we need to kind of move away from this idea that there's one right way to eat and focus on our individual needs and our individual bodies. And that's really what I do in my practice is someone comes in, they're confused about diet. And really what I want to understand is what is your goal? Are you suffering from a specific digestive problem? Then that's really where we want to zero in um, and, you know, think about what's causing it, what foods make it better, what foods make it worse and figure out the healthiest diet that agrees with you. If you don't have digestive problems and you just want to live your healthiest life, then I think we're really more focused around what you like to eat. What's, what's your cultural, your cultural background and the foods that mean something to you. And how do we find the healthiest diet that works with the foods that you like? You know, I can tell you the healthy diet that I follow, but if you hate the foods that I like to eat, that's not a great diet for you. You're not going to be able to follow it. Um, and so I think the idea is really to individualize and tailor a healthy diet for someone based on where they are in their life, where they are in their health, and then move from there. It's kind of interesting because it's like now if you say that you eat bread, you're like shunned by the wellness community. <laughs> 
Yeah, I saw a bumper sticker the other day. This guy had on his bumper sticker, it said, I heart gluten. And I'm like, wow, that's daring to drive <laughs> around with that. Like you could get into some some stuff with another driver. <laughs> <laughs> with skinny women in yoga pants just running into your car. Um, yeah, they're hungry. They could be aggressive. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, okay, so um, inflammation. Uh, you say that inflammation is a word that's thrown around too much. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there's this idea that every possible thing that ails you is caused by inflammation, right? So I'm gassy, it's because I have inflammation. I have a stomach ache, it must be that I'm inflamed. And um, and that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of things that can bother you health-wise that are not at all inflammatory. And so that's number one. There's a lot of confusion around what's inflammatory and what's not just from a health perspective. So what do you mean, like, there's confusion between what's inflammatory and what's not? Oh, you mean our aches and pains. We established, yeah, yeah okay, got it. Exactly, and so especially in the digestive realm, like, sometimes people will have what we call functional bowel disorders, where the nerves aren't, aren't, aren't communicating signals properly, and so you're over-feeling pain in response to sort of a normal amount of stimulus. Or, you know, your gut might move in sort of unpredictable and non-routine ways. These are functional problems. These are not inflammatory problems. So it's not like there's all these, you know, white blood cells producing inflammatory chemicals. Like that's not what's happening. And so tamping down inflammation isn't going to fix a problem like that. And so I think there's just a lot of, you know, just assuming that anything under the sun is inflammatory. And I think that that's from a starting place, not necessarily the case. Right. Now, inflammation is a real issue, but I I see what you mean in the sense that it's not the word for everything that ails you. Correct. Um, Now, when it does come to a bloated belly, uh, I always talk about this like basically entire year of my life where my stomach hurt. And then I realized it was because I discovered how much I liked peanut sauce. And once I stopped eating the peanut, peanut sauce and like eating peanut butter constantly... I uh, I started to feel better. Um, so sometimes it's just, you know, eliminating some things. But what what do you whisper into people's bloated bellies? Well, first I listen to their bellies before I whisper. So if you want to really be able to whisper to a belly, you first have to listen to it whispering to you. <laughs> um, and I think that that's really the key is, you know, as a dietitian, I'm someone who's got an hour to sit and talk to you. You know, a doctor might have, what, 5, 10, 15 minutes? They don't have the time to really sit. And I want to hear your whole story. I want to hear when it started and, you know, what times of day it bothers you and when it's really been great and when it's been horrific and what food you remember eating that absolutely set you off. And I get into the nitty gritty details um, and really try to understand what you're physically experiencing. What is the problem? Where is the problem? What context the problem occurs in? And that really gives me a pretty strong hypothesis by the end of about a half an hour, 35 minutes as to what I think will be going on. And then I'll spend the rest of my time with the patient coming up with the diet um, for that particular problem. And we give it two weeks. And if you have that problem, you will respond to the diet and you will know quickly. Um, And if you don't respond to the diet, that also tells me something. And then you come back and then I try our plan B. Um, And so it's really a conversation. It's a very two-way conversation. It's not me throwing answers at you. It's me listening to you um, because you have the answers. You have all the clues I need 
to get the answers. You just don't know it. And so, I'm helping you tease that out. Right. So, you um, say, so that's what I do. You say two weeks. Do you think that's a like, cause I always hear differing opinions on how long you need to, uh, try out something or eliminate something. You say two weeks. For a digestive problem, yeah. I mean, if you think about the whole digestive cycle from the time you put a food in your mouth to the time you basically poop it out, you're talking 72 hours. So something that's going to exert a benefit in your digestive system or exert an effect of any kind, whether harm or good, you're looking at a three-day turnaround. Um, so if within two weeks you are following a particular diet for a digestive problem and you don't notice any difference, then that's long enough to know that that's not going to be helpful. Um, yeah. So two weeks typically. That's interesting. You say the 72 hour period, because my sister-in-law, she was just diagnosed as being like full fledged celiac. She had no idea she's in her late thirties, but she had had really bad diarrhea and really bad stomach pains over the past year. Um, and, uh, I'm not an expert in this, but they even took like a little piece of her bowel, I think, and did a, like a test on it or um, yeah, biopsy. Right. And, and they found that just like her insides are just so damaged right now. Like she must yeah. be in so much pain. And yet, I mean, we were eating bread together last year and she felt fine. And she even says yeah. that. She's like, sometimes I eat pasta and I love it and I feel absolutely fine. Um, so why is that that our bodies, is it that she doesn't feel that till 72 hours later? Well, no. So celiac disease is a very specific beast in and of itself, and it can have a lot of different presentations. And there's actually something called silent celiac disease, where people with celiac disease whose guts are completely shredded on the inside and very damaged and they're not absorbing well, literally don't feel anything. Hmm. Um, and the only way that a doctor will even know to look for it or find it is because they show up one day and they're anemic, their iron levels are low. And the doctor is like, oh, that's funny. Are you a vegetarian? And the patient will say, no, I'm not. I eat plenty of meat and iron. And the doctor is like, huh. And then they know to look for things that would cause poor absorption of iron. And celiac disease is certainly one of those things. And that's how they find it. Um, other people with celiac disease will present with a skin rash and no digestive problems. Um, and so not everyone with celiac disease will show up with diarrhea or bloating or gas. It can really come in a lot of different packages. That's interesting. It's, it's such a mystery. How do we, so how do we figure it all out? Are you, you, would you say elimination? You know, not necessarily. I mean, you have to be thoughtful about elimination, right? And so I think what's really popular now is there's a lot of these sort of very far-reaching elimination diets, right? You go gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, corn-free, this-free, that-free. You can do something like that, and there's a good chance you'll even feel much different and much better. But where does that get you in terms of knowledge? If you're going to eliminate 20 things at once and you feel better, how do you make sense of that? Was it all 20 things that were bothering you? Was it one of the 20 things? Was it three of the 20 things? And so these sort of, these sort of just broad-based, not individualized elimination diets don't yield a lot of actionable, specific information. My preferred approach is, you know, I guess what I would call a more hypothesis-driven elimination, which is I talk to you for a long time. I develop an informed, educated guess about what I think is going on. And then I just eliminate that specific food or that specific family of foods that has something in common or a particular texture of food, right? Or, you know, we play with your meal size or your meal timing or whatever it is, I think, based on our conversation. And we really hone in on 
just the elimination I think you need. Um, and we give it, like I said, two weeks. Uh, and that way, if you respond to it, you get to an answer really, really quickly. And it's not, you know, 50 things that you didn't need to eliminate and one that you did. It's just that one thing. So that's um, really interesting what you say about texture because uh, so many times we think it's in, in just an ingredient-based problem. Um, but when I eat um, Mary's crackers, you know, those like mm, delicious crunchy yeah. crackers, which like check all of the boxes of like gluten-free and whatever, you know, like good, generally good for you. You think of them as a healthy cracker. Those give me a wicked stomach ache. And I yeah. think it's because they're so crunchy and dense. Yeah. Roughage is a huge issue. And I think it's a really under-recognized issue. And so one thing that I do see a lot is, you know, with salads in particular. So someone, you know, takes upon themselves to be healthier and I'm going to start eating more salad and I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to give up grains or give up gluten or give up whatever. And that means eating more salad. And suddenly they find that they feel worse, not better. They get more stomach aches. They're really bloated. They're sometimes they're even more constipated when you're eating a lot of roughage, which mm -hmm. is shocking, but that can happen. Um, and so it's not always the food and the ingredient and the components of the food. A lot of the time it is the texture. Um, and that's a very under-recognized thing because I think our, food, our, our conversation around food and food tolerance and food intolerance is so focused on you know, I'm sensitive to the protein in that food. Like I can't digest that food and it's inflammatory for me. And sometimes it's purely mechanical. That's a lot of roughage. It takes a lot of stomach acid to break down. It takes a lot of time to empty my stomach. And during the time that it's sitting there being attacked by acid and churned into a liquid, that hurts me. Um, and it can be a really mechanical problem for some people. Okay. That's so interesting to hear you say that because, uh, and I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to myself, but I just know that, um, when I, when I do, I can only speak for my body, you know, but, um, when I do eat a, a lot of like, you know, kale salads and like, I'm just being super veggie focused and healthy and, and it's a lot of raw rather than cooked veggies. Um, I do feel a stomach ache. So should we, um, gear towards more cooked vegetables in our diet? We should listen to our bodies. So some people do great with salads. Some people, a salad helps them stay super regular and it feels great and it feels light and it feels wonderful. Someone like you who feels like they should eat kale salad, you're supposed to eat kale salad, but your body has told you time and time again that kale salad doesn't feel good. Make a kale soup. <laughs> you know, soup is liquid salad. It's the same ingredients, but it's such an easier texture for your stomach to empty. And so I think that there's, like I said, there's not one right way to eat. Um, if raw foods don't feel great, you can get all the same nutrition from soft cooked foods. And so don't be a martyr. You don't have to fall on your sword to eat kale salad or, you know, raw nuts because, you know, the magazines I'll say you're supposed to. You can get those same nutrients from an almond butter instead of raw almonds. And, you know, like I said, cooked veggies instead of raw. Um, listen to your body and eat the healthiest diet that you can comfortably tolerate. Okay. So I feel like so far the moral of the story has been listen to your damn body. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's a lot of moralizing out there about, you know, and sort of this righteous food conversation about, you know, these foods are bad. These foods aren't clean. These foods are, you know, superfoods and you're supposed to eat these, but not all good foods feel good in everybody's body. Um, and so you really have to kind of separate yourself from the moralizing and the, the shoulds and the shoulds and, and really think about what tastes good to you, what feels good to you, 
um, and find plenty of healthy foods within that within that framework. Something so many women struggle with, I think is so many of us, men and women, is overeating. And oh, it's so hard when it tastes good. You know what I mean? To stop. Yeah. Um, but I, I imagine that is obviously a huge contributor to a bloated belly because what happens when you overload your stomach? Well, it depends on how your stomach works, right? And so not some people have a normally functioning stomach. Yeah, you eat a little bit too much. You feel uncomfortably full, but it's nothing tragic. You know, an hour passes, you're fine. Some people's stomachs don't work perfectly normally. Some people's stomachs, especially that top part, doesn't stretch very well. It's kind of less stretchy. And so when those people overeat, um, they can feel this intense pressure and really uncomfortable fullness sort of toward the top of the belly. Um, and it can be nauseating. It can be overtly painful. Some people's stomachs just empty really, really slowly. And so a meal, you're pretty much supposed to empty a meal after three three plus hours, you know, three and a half hours. Some people after three hours after eating even a normally sized meal, they've got 50% of that meal still sitting there. And so when they overeat, th that's sticking with them for the entire day. They're nauseous. They might even vomit. They have zero appetite to eat again. Um, and so overeating can be a problem for anybody from a digestive standpoint, but especially if your stomach doesn't quite work as intended. Right. Because, you know, you say that that can stick with some people so much longer and not in a good way, not in, not in a way that you feel satiated and you get through your afternoon till dinner and you don't feel hunger pangs to eat. It's in a way that you feel you feel pain and bloating. And nauseating. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, and some people it will have a lot of acid reflux in a situation like that because, you know, there's this little uh, valve kind of muscle between your stomach and your esophagus. And it opens and shuts sort of periodically just on its own. And if you've got a full, full, full belly, you know, that's mixing with lots of acid and sitting there for hours and that little muscle opens up for a little breather, those stomach contents are going to reflux on you and cause acid reflux. And so, you know, a lot of stuff can happen from overeating. Um, that doesn't feel good. Hmm. Now, um, what about what about late night eating, binge eating, um, snacking at night? They say that you know intermittent uh, intermittent fasting is such a big thing, and and I think it's wonderful if you can if you can stick to it because I know when I've done it, I feel really good, especially in the mornings for that reason that. You usually stop eating around 6 p.m. or whenever you finish your dinner and you don't eat again for the rest of the night. Yeah. Um, what what does what good does or I should say, what damage does it do to us when you do late night binge? Well, I mean, you know, I, we should differentiate also between like a true binge, you know, where you're just this sort of out of control, like you can't stop eating, eating sort of a very abnormally large amount of food um, versus what I think is common to a lot of people who don't actually have binge eating disorder, but who just graze, incessantly grazing after dinner, back and forth to the kitchen five or six times, you know, just this sort of mindless, grazy snacking that's not really hunger driven, but it's kind of just like, oh, I just feel like I need something like that. Um, you know, obviously, from the point of just weight management, it's a problem. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting research going on now on what we call chronobiology or sort of the biology of uh, in terms of your body's natural circadian rhythms and timing. Um, and we're really starting to understand that when we eat most of our calories matters a lot 
for weight. It matters for blood sugar and diabetes risk. It matters a lot for cholesterol. And, you know, really backloading your calories and especially your carbohydrates more into the night has a not very favorable effect on all those metabolic outcomes. Um, and so sort of this out of control grazing all night long or clearly overt binge eating at night can have a lot of metabolic consequences. Um, and from a digestive standpoint, um, you know, going to bed on a really full stomach, you'll get some acid reflux potentially. That's a problem. Waking up still feeling kind of full from the night before because you were grazing all night long and sort of into late into the night means you might not be hungry for breakfast. And then you kind of get stuck and trapped in this cycle where you skip breakfast because you're waking up kind of full or nauseous or just mad at yourself and, you know, vowing to skip breakfast because you were so bad last night. And then you get to this really dysfunctional cycle where you skip breakfast, you know, try to be good because you were so bad last night. So you have a light salad for lunch or something real, a soup, like a chicken soup with nothing. And then by the time evening rolls around, you're starving and you do it all again. Um, and so sometimes these late night grazy cycles and bingy cycles can lock you into this really unhealthy, dysfunctional pattern. Right. Yeah, because our biggest meal should be in the day, during the day, right? But then Yeah, either breakfast or lunch. You know, that old saying, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. Yeah. Um, there's some pretty good scientific evidence to support that front-loading your calories and making lunch your main meal of the day, or for some people, even breakfast, um, can have a lot of benefits. Yeah, because those days that you go for like a big, big lunch that you wouldn't usually, at least in my case, um, at night, you don't even feel like you need a ton of dinner. So it's exactly. just a matter of switching it. It's just it's hard because, you know, you feel like when you have a big meal in the middle of the day that it slows down your productivity. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I think it really depends what that big meal is, right? Like, I agree. A giant bowl of pasta you're going to be sleeping like a huge giant rice bowl. Sure. Like a lot of sort of simple starchy carbs. If that's your big meal is a problem. But what I like to kind of encourage my patients to do is think about that plate, sort of like a round circle plate and you split it down the middle. Half of that plate at lunch is vegetables. And then you split the other half into quarters. A quarter of that plate is a healthy carb, not like white rice, but quinoa, sweet potato, um, you know, if you can handle them, some beans or lentils or a lentil soup. And then a quarter of that plate is a protein. Um, when the plate looks like that, it's filling, it's bulky, it's, you know, satiating, but it's not going to put you to sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, and so being thoughtful about what that big midday meal is may help you kind of find that happy place between eating a satisfying large lunch that doesn't leave you grazy and starvy and bingy at night but not so big that you're just passing out and feeling heavy and gross. Right. What's your thoughts on the lectin diet? Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the newest thing, that it's like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. Now I can't have, like, a tomato? God. It bothers me so much, if we're being honest, that, you know – the fear-mongering diets bother me so much because, you know, I get it. Someone wants to sell a book. Someone wants to have a bestseller. I get it. Um, but they're not there for the fallout. When you get a patient in the office, like I do, that is now so terrified to eat objectively healthy 
like foods that have been shown to reduce cancer risk and, you know, prolong your life and reduce inflammation. And they're so terrified to eat those foods because someone who wanted to sell a book makes up a fear mongering idea that all these objectively healthy foods that have tens of thousands of studies showing how health promoting they are, all of a sudden they're the new dietary demon. And three years from now, authors writing about lectins will move on to the next fear mongering fad and we'll never hear about lectins again. Um, and it really, it gives us all this collective eating disorder where all of a sudden every food is toxic. Every food, we're not supposed to eat that because of lectins. We're not supposed to eat the nightshades because of that. We're not supposed to eat, you know, dairy because of the hormones. Like what's left? What are we supposed to eat? You can Google any single food and you will find somebody fear mongering against it. And so the lectin diet bothers me. All of these sort of fear mongering diets bother me. So do you think the lectin diet's baseless or do you think that it's just because it's set up in a way that is maybe that that people who maybe don't have a problem with lectins, they might start to assume they are and then they eliminate they eliminate some foods which which could be very good for them, maybe not for somebody else. I think lectins are a red herring. So, you know, take beans for example. Like beans are high in lectins when they're raw. Who the heck eats raw beans? Um, and the fact of the matter is there is so much strong data that people who eat the most beans live the longest, healthiest lives. And there's a great example. And so um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Blue Zones concept, the Blue Zone diet book, where basically this investigative journalist guy kind of traveled the world to these places where people live into their hundreds and they are like basically free of disease. They don't get cancer. They don't get heart disease. They don't get diabetes. And he tried to see like, what, what are they doing? What are they eating? And their diets were really, really, really different. There was one common thread among all the blue zone diets. All of them ate a substantial amount of beans every single day. And so you take that, which is these people are actually eating them for decades and decades, and they're healthier than all of us. And then someone writes a book saying that lectins, of which beans are sort of the primary source, are toxic. Who are you going to believe? And so I think that that's it. You're taking this thing that exists, but blowing it out of proportion and saying that it's harmful when it's not, and saying that it's causing problems that have not been demonstrated to cause. And I think that that's the problem is, I'm not saying that lectins don't exist, I'm saying that the foods that these particular authors are calling out as being rich in lectins have not been shown to be harmful to anybody's health. And in fact, quite the contrary, they've been shown to be tremendously health promoting. Hmm. Now, um, what's your take on, so autoimmune diseases, uh, they're on the rise, or at least we're all identifying them within ourselves a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, which foods do you, and I know it, it all comes down to the individual, but are there any foods that if you do think you suffer from from an autoimmune disease or you do that we should steer clear of? You know, there's not really great science on this. And so obviously celiac disease is the exception. You know, that's an autoimmune disease. You have to clearly steer clear of gluten in all of its forms. And so that's very well established. We'll take that one out of the conversation. Um, when you think about what an inflammatory diet pattern is, what science says an inflammatory diet pattern is, it's foods that are very high in saturated fat. And so animal fat, so like full fat dairy, red meats, um, frank coconut oil, if we're being honest. I know that that's a very unpopular thing to say, but it's true. Um, foods high in saturated fat, foods high in cholesterol, 
um, and sort of these very refined carbohydrates. That is, I think, fair to say, very well established in terms of foods that promote inflammation and sort of an inflammatory milieu in the body. Does that mean that you should never eat them? No, but it means the more of them you eat, you know, the more likely you are to be creating a more inflammatory environment. And so, you know, for example, I'm an omnivore. I eat everything, um, and I, including red meat. But I probably eat maybe two or three ounces of red meat a week. You know, in that quantity, it's not going to be inflammatory when balanced against the rest of my incredibly anti-inflammatory diet. So it's not like, you know, an ounce of one of those foods passes your lips and you're suddenly setting off this cascade of inflammation. That's not how the body works. That's not how inflammation works. It's about the balance. It's about really what are you chronically eating? What is the bulk of your diet consisting of? And if you're on a diet that's really, really high, high, high red meat and very low, low, low in plant fiber, you're, you know, potentially risking setting up a more inflammatory environment. As far as some of the other foods that get blamed for inflammation, you know, there's a lot of them, not really much data to support any of it. I have a juicy question for you. And, okay. <laughs> okay. I have two questions left. Okay. One is, what's the deal with white rice? I love it. Lectin diet says you should have that instead of brown rice now. I feel fine when I eat it. People tell say it's really bad because it spikes your insulin levels like crazy. But what's your take? Well, look, white rice is extremely delicious. <laughs> it would be very strange to eat Indian food without white rice. And mm -hmm. so I think that there's a real cultural role for it that I, I don't discount. You know, it's part of a lot of cultures. And so I don't say that nobody should eat white rice. Um, having said that, it is, you know, my objection to white rice as a real staple for people has nothing to do with lectins because I don't think that that's a thing. Um, it has a lot more to do with uh, how it spikes your blood sugar levels. Um, white rice is, if not the most, one of the most, what we call high glycemic foods. Your body can break down white rice into sugar faster than it can break down sh table sugar into sugar. <laughs> Shit. Um, and so it spikes your blood sugar very, very quickly. And the more of it you eat, the more it spikes your blood sugar. If you've got diabetes, that's a big problem. If you don't have diabetes, what it can do is, you know, depending on how much of it you eat, it can kind of spike your sugars pretty quickly after eating, and that produces a real surge of the hormone insulin, um, which is required to bring high blood sugar down. What can happen is when you have a surge of insulin, it sometimes does its job a little too well. And not only does it bring your blood sugar sort of down to where it started, it overcompensates and you kind of crash a little bit. So what can happen is, you know, a couple hours after eating a really high glycemic meal and loads of white rice, you will be like dying of hunger in like two and a half hours later. Um, and it kind of creates these really like unhappy spikes and crashes, spikes and crashes where you just end up kind of overeating and craving more carbs and craving more sugar to get your blood sugar back up after a crash like that. And so... I eat white rice when I go out for Indian food. I love it. Um, but otherwise, if I'm cooking rice at home, I do typically go to like a, a nice brown rice instead. But what about how people in, I assume, in some of those blue zones probably have a heavy dependence on white rice, like in Japan yeah. or... Okinawa is a great example. So like two of the blue zones, one is Okinawa, Japan, and one of them is a community in Costa Rica, right? And so these are cultures that they eat rice. Um, and you know, in Okinawa, I'm guessing it's probably 
more on the white variety, which is again coming back to this idea that one individual food does not make or break a diet, does not make or break inflammation, does not make or break diabetes risk. It's your whole dietary pattern. And yeah, they're eating white rice in Okinawa, but what else are they eating? They're eating a ton of fish. They're eating a ton of vegetables and sea vegetables. Um, and white rice isn't their only carb. They're also eating a lot of soy, um, you know, soybean as a healthy carbon slash protein. And they're eating actually some root vegetables and Japanese sweet potatoes and pumpkin. So the white rice can coexist within an overall moderate, healthy diet pattern. If your entire diet is sort of an American style diet where you're just getting takeout Chinese food every day, um, you know, general toast chicken and white rice, you know, that's a really different story. Um, and so you can never just look at one food and be like, that's healthy, that's not healthy. It's what is the overall dietary pattern and how does that one food fit into everything else you're eating? We all have room for something that's a little bit less than perfect. And, you know, we have to figure out whether those foods that we love fit in. Okay. That makes me feel happy that I don't have to eliminate <laughs> it completely. Now, you are a registered dietitian. And how long have you been registered dietitian in? <laughs> uh, eight and a half years. Okay. And you go to, you obviously go to school for that. Yes. How many years do you go to school for that? Well, just to be a dietitian, it's it's kind of like an undergraduate major, and so it's probably like a year and a half's worth of your undergraduate courses. Um, but I got a master's degree in clinical nutrition, so all said, I went back to school for three years. Okay, so congratulations. Um, Thank you. Now, health coaches, health coaching is on the rise. Like it seems like one in four girls on Instagram are a health coach. And I'm not knocking it, but what's your take on all of that? Because I assume that a lot of um, people come to you confused about their diets and how they should be eating because of what they've heard online or from, I don't know, maybe someone who might not be as knowledgeable. What are your thoughts yeah. on all of this? <laughs> and I'm not well, trying to like back you into a corner and make you say, no, it's me. fine. I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, you might not want to knock health coaches, but I will, uh, you know, I don't think that the internet is really a great place to get health information. If we're being honest, um, you know, internet's great for chicken recipes. <laughs> the internet's <laughs> great for, you know, social media. It's not so great for health information because anybody can say anything on the internet about health. And, you know, with diet in particular, you kind of run into this problem where everybody eats, therefore everyone feels that they're an expert on eating. Um, and, you know, especially someone who's really healthy and fit, you know, I think that it may come from a good place, right? Like, look how healthy and fit I am. And I see that so many people are struggling. I want to share what I do, I do and what works for me. And, and then a lot of times I think that comes from a very genuine place. They're not necessarily trying to swindle you or sell you something. Um, but the problem is what works for you may not work for someone else. And if you're not qualified to really understand medical stuff and, you know, and really the science behind potentially serious health things, you can inadvertently harm someone by giving them advice about what worked for you when you don't understand the true medical issues that a stranger on the internet is presenting with. And, and, and that's really the argument for expertise. Like there's a reason that I, you know, quit my job and went to school for three years and put myself into tremendous debt 
to learn this stuff because I don't want to hurt somebody. I want to help them. And I don't want to give cookie cutter advice to every single person because I have a belief, a personal religion around food or a personal philosophy around diet. It's not about me and what I believe. It's about you and what your body needs. And I think that's, I think, a key difference between a, a credentialed registered dietitian and someone who has decided to become a health coach, um, even from a well-meaning good place. It's, it's the training and it's the motivation. Got it. Awesome. Man, it's been so good talking to you. I feel like I could pick your brain forever. Everything you, you say, I'm like, I feel like I have 10 questions that I want to piggyback on top of it. So <laughs> have to do it again. Yeah, you'll have to come back. Um, if you like this episode um, and you want to comment on it, there's something you had that like an aha moment or a bit of a breakthrough or maybe something you disagreed with, hit me up on uh, on Instagram stories. Just uh, tag me at Mindful Mostly. Um, you can also DM me. And if you liked the episode or any of the episodes you hear, please share the love. I want to have those conversations with you guys and I want to see who's listening. And I want the world to know about this show and if you can tell a friend about it. I mean, that's how Mindful Mostly and our community grows. So thank you so much for being part of it. The Insta, the Insta handle, if you're not on it already, is at Mindful Mostly. And myself, I'm Andrea Collins FM. You guys, before Christmas, I'm so excited because Ruby Warrington is going to be on the show. She's kind of a big deal. And she's going to be talking to us about the sober, curious movement. You got to hear what she has to say. She's coming up in the next couple of weeks and so much more. So I will talk to you very soon, okay? Right here on Mindful Mostly. <laughs>